Welcome to the AccuSprout Podcast, where it's my mission to help new practitioners of Chinese medicine navigate from school to career. I'm Stacy. I'm an acupuncturist and herbalist, podcaster, coach, and creator of Magical Networks. Be sure to check out all four pillars of the podcast where I cover case studies to sharpen your clinical skills, mindset Mondays to support your mental health, new practitioner interviews to prove that you are not alone, and all things business from launching your practice to negotiating your pay if you choose to be an employee. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors. So if you would like to support the podcast, be sure to check out the sponsors page on the website to claim your special AccuSprout offers. When I first started my practice, I was actually kind of a disaster when it came to my books. I hired an accountant who actually laundered money from another client. So I went on a quest to find a bookkeeper who really tailors to and loves working with acupuncturists. And I found Sarah at Horizon West Bookkeeping, and I'm feeling pretty fortunate. Sarah offers acupuncturists and the AccuSprout community a couple different packages so that she can meet you where you are. If you're new to practice, she can come in and do what's called a QuickBooks startup package for you, where you get pretty deep discounts on QuickBooks for about four months. She sets up your chart of accounts, assists with linking your bank accounts, makes sure that all the transactions are imported, and then teaches you how to use it with two hours of one-on-one training. It's a killer deal. She also offers cleanup packages and catch-up packages. Not catch-up packages, guys. Catch-up packages. And a monthly package, which is what I use. And I find it quite affordable and so, so, so worth it because, honestly, I never, since the beginning, have been able to keep up with my bookkeeping. You can schedule a free 15-minute consultation with Sarah to make sure that you guys are the right fit for each other. And you can do that at horizonwestbookkeeping.com forward slash AccuSprout or look for the link in the show notes. Today's episode is also sponsored by Jane, an all-in-one practice management software with helpful features to power your acupuncture practice. Jane offers flexible scheduling options that match the way you work. You have the option of offering one-on-one online sessions for initial consults, meeting in person, and scheduling staggered appointments to accommodate treating patients across different treatment rooms. Jane has you covered. Keep the relaxation going with a seamless checkout experience using Jane's PCI-compliant payment solution, Jane Payments. You can collect patient credit cards securely through your intake form or at the time of booking with an online booking payment policy. This can also help reduce no-shows in your practice. It's a win-win. And Jane's unlimited SMS and email reminders can be sent automatically before each appointment as an extra layer of no-show protection. To learn more about how Jane's helpful features can help you power your acupuncture practice, head to jane.app to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their team. Or if you're ready to get started, head on over to accusprout.com forward slash Jane. And remember to use the code accusprout1mo at the time of sign up to get a one-month grace period applied to your new account. Do you think there's anything else that we missed or that we should talk about? God, no. It's exhausting, right? Yeah, yeah I'm so tired. <laughs> I, I, this stuff, I'll be honest, this excites me. I like kind of have a lot of energy. <laughs> no, I know. I know. And it's, I understand. It's, it's, it would be equally similar if I sat and talked to you about Chinese medicine for 90 minutes yeah. and you'd be like, please stop. <laughs> this hurts. No, the wording's a, a little different. And so you're really tracking 
and thinking really hard about the language and about understanding it too. It's really yes. hard. Okay. Do you think that um, everything that, that we covered will, will give, give your listeners like a direction and somewhere to start or some understanding of where to start? Welcome to the AccuSprout Podcast, where it's my mission to create a supportive community for new practitioners of Chinese medicine, while I give you the information and inspiration to help you grow towards your vision of success in your first couple years of practice. This is Stacey Whitcomb, and I am your host. That was a closing outtake of this episode. I was wiped out, mentally exhausted. We had just spent... 90 minutes talking law and how it relates to the practice of medicine and legal speak is exhausting but super necessary and i'm so grateful that i had rachel schumont of council for wellness here with me today to break it all down for us i don't know about you guys but i'm total freedom lover like i love to navigate this world my way and only rarely does it come close to the societal norm <laughs> But I think a lot of practitioners of Chinese medicine are like that. We tend to be outliers and renegades. Unfortunately, I often see a tendency for Chinese medical practitioners to sweep legal professionalism into the gray space by not doing due diligence with the seemingly small things like HIPAA compliant emails and photos on social media. And it's easy to do. Our ethics and jurisprudence classes are short in school and relatively boring and mashed in between the high demands of memorizing an entire pharmacopoeia. So this is my continued graduation gift to you. Let's till the proverbial soil and plant some very healthy and robust seeds. In order to keep that seed alive and help it grow, we might encounter some tasks that are not fun, but necessary for it to thrive. The same goes for your career and practice staying informed about the ever-changing climate and world of technology. Just like following the rules of nature, these are rules that you have to follow with your practice so that you can thrive. In this episode, we're going to touch on some laws and practices you need to be aware of as practitioners. Make sure the light shines on your soil. No shady practices here. We are going to talk mostly about your online presence and what you need to be aware of with regards to social media, HIPAA compliance, BAA agreements, webinars, emails, phones, and newsletters, and then some. The information here is so valuable. It is so rich. You really need to make sure that you're in line with all of these things. Thanks for listening, guys. I appreciate you. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Rachel Schumann. I'm so super excited to have you here. Why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you? Hi, thank you. Yes, thank you for having me. My name is Rachel Schumann. I am a health and wellness attorney. I have a California-based practice, Council for Wellness, and I am physically located just north of San Francisco, but I meet with clients virtually. So my clients are pretty spread out. I specialize in the laws and the regulations as they pertain to healthcare providers like, like you and to practitioners in the health and wellness industry in general. And I absolutely love what I do. I love that I get to help create and maintain these solid businesses so that my clients are able to focus on doing 
what they do without worrying about their security and, and liability. And as far as how I help my clients, I, I help with really any legal issues that come up within the business. But specifically, I do a lot of entity planning, establishing solid contracts, hiring and employment classification, trademarking, copywriting, and, and just really like, again, anything else legal business related that comes up for my clients. Wow. That's a lot. Okay. So tell me who are your, your clients who comes to see you specifically or uses your services. So when I got into this business, I started out actually in in criminal defense and I was litigating criminal cases in a courtroom. And it was a, a really intense part of my legal career. And for a period, I stepped back and went and um, got trained as a yoga teacher. And I, I taught yoga for a few years. While I was teaching, I, I largely didn't think about my legal past, but I had an instance where one of my students asked me to support him in a headstand and he kicked so hard that he we were next to a mirror and I thought he was going to shatter the mirror. And that situation made me really evaluate how I was operating my yoga business. And I went in search of someone who could help me, who could help me look at my business and determine the ways that I could best protect myself financially. And what I found was that there wasn't anyone, there were certainly uh, business attorneys and, and healthcare attorneys, but not anyone that I felt could evaluate my niche business. So I ended up creating uh, my own plan. I researched the laws and I figured out my business and how to operate my business in a way that protected me financially. I started talking to my colleagues and, and helping them and found that I was actually operating an entirely other business. And so I started my business working with yoga teachers to answer your question. But very quickly, I learned that it wasn't just the yoga industry where this service was needed. There is this whole area of health and wellness that is really not served by by the legal community. And so I expanded my practice to include that. And now I still work with yoga teachers, Pilates teachers, any movement, any uh, studio owners, but I've expanded into healthcare as well. And so now I work with a lot of acupuncturists and dietitians and also health coaches, massage therapists, estheticians, where I focus my energy is helping the smaller part of the health and wellness industry. And what I mean by that is not the hospitals, not the surgeons and, and physicians out there, more of the whole healing and holistic providers. It's so nice and refreshing to have someone who has sort of like an inside perspective as to what our needs are and perhaps what our our languaging capabilities are as well. It's sort of like people coming to get acupuncture. They don't understand the language. They don't understand what we're doing. And it's so intimidating to have to contact an attorney. I think most of us don't even know if we should or why we should. Absolutely. Yes. That's what I hear often when I, when I start working with people is I think I need to talk to you, but I don't know what we need to talk about. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And it's so true. It's kind of funny because I'm in a similar situation where I'm really trying to help new practitioners. And I keep asking this question, like, what do you want help with? What do you need help with? And ultimately nobody really has a good question. I, uh, sorry guys, (laughs) to my (laughs) listeners, but I think you don't know what you don't know. Absolutely. And so it's more of like, let's take this, this beginner knowledge that 
that I have, because I'm also a, a relatively new practitioner and you're, you did the same, like took the knowledge from the inside and are trying to help other practitioners know what they don't know. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Let's just go acupuncture for now. What is their biggest concern? What is their biggest question for you mostly? A lot of what I do with acupuncturists, it's actually divided between two things. One is getting the right intake forms in place. And so patient agreements, written informed consent, a HIPAA policy, HIPAA authorizations. And so getting those documents in place. And then for whatever reason, I'm not sure why, but a lot of my practice this past year has turned into consulting on um, insurance contracts. And that is its own animal. <laughs> but a lot of newer acupuncturists have decided to, that they are going to accept insurance. And they <laughs> these insurance companies and health plans put a 50 70 page contract in front of them and they don't understand it. It takes time for me to read and understand. So having someone who doesn't understand legal language um, and having them sign a 70 page contract is confusing. So I've been doing a lot of consulting in that area this year as well. Would you like to address the scope of this conversation before we continue? Yes, definitely. I would. The lawyer in me loves to identify boundaries. So like I said, I'm an attorney. I am licensed in California and I'm licensed in Florida and I am able to offer legal advice on the laws in those states as well as advice on federal law. And today we're going to talk about some really interesting topics and I'm so happy to be here and to share my knowledge with you. And I hope that I can provide practical information that helps you better understand how you operate your business. I would also really like to make clear that while I am an attorney, I'm not your attorney. And so me speaking here doesn't establish any sort of attorney-client relationship. And the information that we're talking about today is for general informational purposes only. Nothing that I say should be taken as legal advice or as advice that would directly apply to any specific facts. And I would encourage you that if I say something today that raises a question or makes you think about something in, in your own business, it is always best to find a resource in your area and get a professional opinion. <laughs> Got it. We're even going to go into that from the acupuncturist perspective as well, addressing at what point somebody becomes your patient. Right. That's later down the line, but that is a very similar thing that we need to think about as well when we are discussing healthcare and giving advice. So back to these insurance companies and why acupuncturists are deciding to go ahead and contract with the insurance companies. I want to make a point because I want to relate this back to an interview that I did with Maury West. This is for the listeners. I did an interview with Maury West. I can't remember the episode right now, but I'll put it in the show notes. And she discusses that people who contract with insurance companies just sort of throw in the towel because they make you jump through so many hoops that by the time you get the contract in front of you, you're so sick of it that you just sign it. <laughs> so good job to all the acupuncturists who are out there having attorneys look at their paperwork. Can you go a little more into that for me, Rachel? Yes, absolutely. I will say that you are absolutely right. Most of the time, the people that I speak with come to me after they have already signed one, two, three contracts, and they're now in their fourth, and they've um, experienced some issues with the providers that they're already under contract with, and they're starting to question things. So I usually come in later in the game uh -huh. and am talking to them about 
their existing contracts and their most current one that they have in front of them. And I, I consult on, on different levels depending on what my client needs, but I have taken a, f- a full contract and actually pulled it apart and made written notes and gone through it piece by piece with my clients so that they understand that most of these contracts are similar. And so you can take that and apply it to to other contracts that you've already signed or contracts that you will sign down the road. I have um, clients who want to terminate their contracts. So I have consulted with them about the termination provisions and continuity of care requirements that most contracts have language that say that you have to continue providing care in California. It's required under California law for some conditions. So I consult there. I also have in the past worked with acupuncturists to help them negotiate their reimbursement rates. It actually isn't an area that I, (laughs) that I enjoy because the insurance industry is unforgiving, but I still do in certain circumstances, I still do work with clients if they have a certain issue that needs to be addressed. And and so in that regard, that's what I do with insurance. (laughs) I'm going to change direction here and kind of segue into some questions that I had. So before I do that, and we're headed for HIPAA for the listeners, we're going to go into a lot of HIPAA stuff and things that we need to understand about an internet presence. So before I do that, can you first give us a couple definitions that are going to be important to understand in our conversation? The first one being personal health information. Sure. So it's protected health information is actually a term that is defined <laughs> defined uh, by federal law. And it is health information that relates to the health of an individual, the provision of health care to an individual, or the payment uh, for health care services for that individual. And that can be in the past, present, or future. And that is health information that is created, received, stored, or transmitted by a HIPAA-covered entity or their business associate. So you as the acupuncturist would be a HIPAA-covered entity. We'll address business associates as well, but if you're um, using a business associate, if they had access to this information, they would be governed by the the protected health information laws as well. This information includes things like medical histories, test results, insurance information. But at the same time, that information has to be individually identifiable. And so it has to have something associated with it so that it connects a a person to that information. So a name, an address, a phone number, a social security number. It has to identify them in some way. We have lots of Facebook groups and I see a lot of case discussions. At what point... Actually, why don't you dive into that? I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts on that. I have questions. Yeah, I, You'd rather me tee you yeah, questions. I do have a lot of thoughts on that. So the first consideration, I guess, would be whether or not the information you're putting on there would, would fall under the category of this protected health information. And I think that this is very fact specific. So I think that anytime you're putting information out there as it relates to one of your patients, I think that you should carefully consider that piece of information, whether it's text or a visual and and determine whether or not that would be protected and think about whether or not you can legally put that online. What would be identifiable? In other words, people are asking for help with a case and they might take a picture of the person's tongue and they might say, you know, give the information female 36 suffering from, say, Western medically diagnosed uterine fibroids. This is the presentation. 
what would you suggest? What formula would you guys suggest? Is that okay? So maybe I would make sure that there was nothing on the photograph that generally you shouldn't be posting pictures of your patient's face. So if it's just the tongue and that person doesn't have a distinct tongue piercing that could individually identify Mm -hmm. them, if you're not including the rest of the face and there isn't a reasonable basis for identifying your patient just based on that. So if it was just the surface of the tongue and you couldn't see any, anything else, and there was nothing else on the photo that would identify the date of service that could tie that picture to who was in your office that day. I think, again, it's very fact specific. If there's no reasonable way that you could identify your patient from that picture, then it's likely that that would not be considered protected health information. Does that answer that? Sorry. If it was just the surface of the tongue and there was nothing else on there and there was no way to identify that to Mm -hmm. your patient, then then Mm -hmm. it's not likely that would be considered protected health information. But you start adding information to that and that increases the likelihood that it could be considered protected health information. Here's one that often goes through my mind. So these are closed groups. And usually only acupuncturists, as far as I know, the ones that I'm in are only acupuncturists, licensed or students. And my thought is, well, one, you're having a conversation on rented space. That always kind of makes me nervous. You don't own that conversation. Facebook does. And then two, the other thing that I always go back to, what if that's traceable to you at some point? So you have to be really careful about where you're posting somebody's tongue or where you're talking about people. Because if you live in a small town, I live in a small town. I'm always nervous that somebody's going to be like, hey, wait, that's me. <laughs> like, yes. something that I'm talking about. And they're going to be like, hey, especially as a podcaster, because I'm, I'm contemplating doing case studies, but I can't, I can't talk about my patients. I can't talk about any case that I have because that is identifiable, right? Absolutely. That, and yes, thank you. So well, let's take these two parts that you were talking about. First, that you're putting it on this this platform that you that you don't have control over. And that is a huge issue because HIPAA does control the transmission and storage of of protected health information. And the, if the information that you're putting on Facebook is considered protected health information, then transferring it to Facebook and and having it stored with Facebook, that information needs to be secure. And the problem is, is that, and we're going to revisit this, this definition of business associate agreement later, if Facebook is handling protected health information, then they are your business associate. And if they are a business associate, HIPAA requires that you have a written contract to go along with that. And from my understanding, Facebook will not sign a BAA. That's my understanding. Right. Uh, so these Facebook book groups do not have a BAA. So you have to be extremely careful. If you divulge any personal health information, you could very easily get fined by HIPAA. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So that that is one one issue. The other issue is the security of the admittance to your closed Facebook group? Who mm-hmm. Who's verifying that? How far does the verification process go? Mm-hmm. Are you sure that these are all acupuncturists? They're all licensed? And those are things that the, the more that you're involved in that, the, the less control you have. And so if you're putting someone's protected health information out there, that is a, a huge concern for your liability. So can you tell me if we wanted to discuss cases, what would be acceptable? What would create a situation where it was okay to have a discussion about a case? Yeah. So that's the other part of what you were saying. HIPAA doesn't say that you cannot disclose any 
protected health information. There's actually many ways that you can disclose protected health information permissibly. You can disclose that information without your patient's authorization when it relates to treatment, payment, and healthcare operations. You can also disclose permissibly if you have your patient's authorization. So here in this closed Facebook situation, what what I think you'd be looking at is the allowance for disclosure for treatment. Mm -hmm. And the way that treatment is defined under HIPAA is it is providing, coordinating, or managing healthcare and related services for an individual by one or more healthcare providers. So assuming that this is a fully vetted, closed closed group, and they're all licensed acupuncturists, and you are consulting with other healthcare providers about this condition, then assuming all those things are accurate and true, then likely you would be disclosing permissibly. The problem is, like I said, that you start to lose control over who's in this group and your mm-hmm. understanding of, of who that person is that you're disclosing it to. And that's concerning. Right. So there's a risk. If you're doing it, the risk is more so that you don't know who's in the group. So yes. you don't know if, mm, so if it went anyway, we could really keep going on that. Yeah. <laughs> so if it went to court, blah, blah, blah. Like there, yes. there's, I see how you just teed all of that up and how so that ch- could Go ahead. Two really, really important points here. A a foolproof way to make sure you're not violating any laws is to have your client sign an authorization. Hey, I'm going to be in this Facebook group. I think they're all acupuncturists and I'm doing it for these reasons. Is that okay with you? And they sign an authorization and you use their, you disclose based on their authorization. Is that realistic in terms of your practice? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But the other, the other consideration is to take, take your specific facts to a professional. Like I said, in your area, someone who, someone who knows the law, who is familiar with your practice and who can tell you what you're doing in that instance, if that is legal or not. Okay. I think we, we took that path to the end. I have a lot of questions, like I said in the beginning, about management of online information regarding acupuncture practices. Why don't you define the BAA for me first so that everybody knows what we're talking about when we go into that? Yes. So a BAA is a business associate agreement. And I think even to take a step even further back, a business associate is a person or an entity that isn't your employee, but who provides services for you that involve accessing protected health information. And that can also include someone who's a subcontractor of your business associate. So when I, in terms of acupuncturists, I think of billing companies. And what HIPAA says is that if you are using a business associate, if you are giving someone else access to this protected health information, then you need to have a written contract, which is called a business associate agreement. And that is to ensure that the protected health information is safeguarded. And what that agreement does is outline each person's responsibilities as it pertains to that protected health information and limits how your business associate can use and disclose that protected health information. And then ultimately your business associate is only able to legally use or disclose that health information as permitted by your agreement or as permitted under by law. And are all 
BAA is written pretty much the same or is it different per company? Your BAA will depend on who the business associate is, what health information they have access to, and how you're limiting their user disclosure of that health information. So it will depend on who the business associate is. And it is is always a good idea if you're signing something, have someone review it and go through it with you and explain to you what it says so that you make sure that you're compliant on your end as well. So just for my listeners, an example of where you would have this agreement would be with your email provider. So in other words, Google has a a BAA that is in their Google workspace where they'll sign a BAA so that you can have your clinic email go through Google. So I have so many questions because I guess... When the pandemic hit, I really started diving into bringing this desire of mine to help new practitioners to fruition. I did a lot of research and a lot of swimming around on the internet. I find that there's a lot of hybrid practices that acupuncturists have, which I think is genius because they're creating multiple streams of income. But I'm also curious about some potential crossover and liability in the way that they're doing things. I see that some acupuncturists are practicing medicine, but then they're also calling themselves a coach. And so I'm so curious as to people who are calling themselves a coach, I'm curious if they're coaching outside of the state, if coaching falls under their liability insurance, can you discuss this I don't know, this split sure, in the practice yes. and, and what things these people need to, you know, have in their back pocket as far as information on potential disasters there? Always want to avoid the disasters. Well, yeah, it's good to, it's good to know where you're going to mess up when you start taking steps. Let's, let's, just, let's just point them yeah. all out first. I often say in my, in my practice that legal issues are not issues until they're a huge issue. So having the information ahead of time and taking the mm-hmm. steps to protect yourself ahead of time is always, always a good idea. But in terms of health coaching, yes, you're right. It's become such a big thing in general in in the health and wellness industry. And I'm actually usually consulting in the reverse. People are usually coming to me and asking um, if what they're doing is crossing that line into the unlicensed practice of medicine. And so here, it's we're looking at this in reverse. You you have the education, you have the training, but you essentially want to hang your hat up and, and function as less than that. And I don't think the question is whether or not you could legally do that because yes, we, we're all, we all are trained in our areas, but we can have other businesses. I think the question, like you said, pertains more to your liability for doing so. And again, I know I sound like a broken record, but I think the answer depends on your specific facts, where your business is located, the laws that govern you in your state, what services you're offering as po- part of your coaching business and and how you're marketing those services to your coaching clients. So there are few, if any, laws that regulate setting yourself up as a health coach, but there are many fairly strict laws that regulate you as an acupuncturist. And those laws control how you operate your practice and they hold you to this higher standard of care. And to step back, first of all, you're you're governed by state law. So each state is different. And in your laws, you will have your scope of practice. Um, What you are allowed to do as an acupuncturist will be defined within your state laws. And states pass these laws essentially to protect the public so that the public knows that their healthcare providers have met and are being held to certain standards. 
And they also help to ensure that their providers are maintaining these standards. And if they're not, then they can lose their license to practice. And those high standards, you don't see that with health coaching. So just because you call yourself a health coach doesn't necessarily take away that higher standard that you're held to. So I think my first suggestion would be to, if you're considering including this coaching component to your business, would be to first look at your state's licensing laws and see what your scope of practice is um, under your laws. And then look at the services that you would like to offer as part of your coaching business and and see whether those services um, are services that would fall under your your scope of practice as an acupuncturist. The health coach doesn't diagnose or treat or prescribe. Coaches are more, they're acting as educators or helping you uh, to navigate your way through healthcare. But if your services are going beyond that and you're moving under more towards the scope of practice as an acupuncturist, then you're going to have that higher standard um, that you're held to. You're going to be exposing yourself to, to more liability. And I think a good way to look at it is if you have a coaching client and something goes awry, that client is going to say that you are an acupuncturist and that you are held to this higher standard of care and you have this increased liability. And as far as your your malpractice insurance goes, that's a good place to start. Contact your malpractice provider, insurance provider, and ask them, say, hey, look, this is something that that I would like to do. Is this something that you would cover in the event of a lawsuit? I know personally, for me, my professional malpractice insurance does not cover coaching, legal coaching, or legal education. So that's, that's a really good place to start. But I would also look at how your coaching client's perceive these services that you're offering and how you're marketing to them. Are you marketing as an acupuncturist or do they understand the difference between your services as as an acupuncturist and your services as, as a coach? And one really great way to establish these boundaries is with a written agreement. Like I I said earlier, I do a lot of intake forms for acupuncturists and a lot of the intake forms that I do include a patient agreement. And so I think having the same type of agreement, a service agreement with your coaching clients would be a great idea so that you could outline and establish the boundaries of your coaching relationship. And so that you could have it in writing that, that they understand that you are not offering acupuncture services as part of your, your coaching agreement. So yeah, I think that having that written agreement is a great place to start. I would also do my best to separate your two practices in terms of even the terminology that you use, you know, refer to your acupuncture patients as patients, refer to your, your coaching clients as clients. When you're advertising, may, make sure that you're separating that, that you are, you are a coach in that regard and an acupuncturist with your acupuncture practice. And then also be very clear on the services that you're providing. May, the services that you provide as a coach don't provide services that would fall under the scope of your acupuncture practice. Keep that clear division between the two. Mm, can you say that again? Sure. <laughs> I would. When you are determining how the services you are offering for your acupuncture practice and for your um, coaching practice, make sure that there is a clear line there. Make sure that your coaching services are your coaching services and that those do not start to cross the line over into your scope of practice as an acupuncture. Okay. So that 
jumbled my brain a little bit. So let's talk okay. about that for a minute, which is great because yes. it's probably jumbled a lot of people's brains <laughs> if it worked on me. So a minute ago, you just said, take a look at your scope of practice, your state licensing scope of practice to see if you could be coaching under an acupuncture or when you take a look at your scope of practice, do you make sure that your coaching is worded completely outside of what your scope of practice is? Do you see where I'm a little confused? Yeah. Yeah. So here, this is the way that I think about it. In California, part of the scope of practice, as an example, is, is breathing techniques. If you are coaching a client and you are saying to treat this issue, use these breathing techniques. I think that crosses into the the practice of acupuncture and under your scope of practice. But if you are saying, okay, you have a lot of stress in your life. Here are some resources that you could use to help manage that. So, you know, you could, you could see an acupuncturist, you could, you could try yoga classes, you could, you, you could go in these different avenues. I think it's to, a good way to look at it is, are you pointing them in the direction of the professionals or are you acting as the professional? So let me just throw this back at you. Maybe just reword what you just said. You're an acupuncturist, but you have your coaching hat on and you're working with somebody who say has anxiety and you're giving them tools to manage that. If you teach them how to breathe and that is also written in your state scope of practice, then you are now wearing your acupuncturist hat and you're now liable as an acupuncturist, not as a, not that anybody's going to sue you for breathing, but I'm just saying, for example, <laughs> would that be what you just said? Yes, but <laughs> I think that there isn't a yes or a no to that. I think that it, it would depend on th- that patient, that instance, what, what they perceive and and how, if it made it into a courtroom, what, what the judge or, or jury would think. So I think what it would look like is you would have, assuming you had a written agreement with your coaching client and your coaching client, there an issue happened and they decided to sue you and you make it all the way into a courtroom. I think that they would try to establish that you were acting as an acupuncturist, that that would be an issue, that you would be held to that higher standard as an acupuncturist. So if I want to be a coach and an acupuncturist, but I want to have a separate coaching business, I need to take a look at what the state says is my scope of practice as an acupuncturist and work outside of that. That would be the safest route to go. Yes. I think the, sh- the short answer is yes. If you, you should be aware of the scope of practice that is permitted in your state. And if you are operating under that scope of practice, then I think that you are going to be, whatever services you're offering that fall under that scope are going to be considered the practice of acupuncture and you're going to be held to that higher standard. If you are operating as a coach, I would look at your coaching business as more of an educator and to point someone in the direction of the resources. So if you think that they would benefit from the services of an acupuncturist, then you give them the resources to go and find someone to give them the treatment that they need. So as a coach, if you think somebody should learn how to breathe, you don't teach them how to breathe. You send them to the person who knows how to breathe, even though you know how to breathe. 
It's such a, everything is so, it can be very gray. And I think that ultimately it will come down to the specific facts of the conversation that you're having with your coaching client in that minute and the the words that are used, the tools that are used. And I think that it's very fact specific. So it's hard to pin down. You can do this. You can say this. You can't say this because it depends. It depends on a lot of different factors. I think practitioners or acupuncturists who want to go down the coaching route really need to research what that actually means and to understand kind of like what you just said, coaches guide, Mm -hmm. coaches don't actually diagnose or treat. treat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So shifting a little again, I see people send newsletters, which is something that I do with my practice as well. There are so many things that you can do once you capture emails. You could be capturing emails of people who aren't your patients on your website, but also people who are patients are going to be in these email sequences too, that you're going to put out with educational information and, or, you know, if you put on webinars or you sell products, et cetera, with these newsletters, do you need a BAA agreement with them as well? I think the short answer is yes. An email chain of solely your patients, or even if it's a mixed chain, your patients' email addresses are in there and could reasonably be used to identify them as an individual and be tied to the provision of healthcare services so that email address could be considered protected health information. And because you're giving that email platform access to that health information, you would need to establish the the BAA with that platform. Even if Uh, that's the only piece of information that that company gets is the email, they don't get any other information and they don't know if that person's your patient. Yes. And I think also there could be gray to this, but mm-hmm. to err, err on the side of caution, because that is personal information that's tied to, that's tied to your patient and that's tied to you as the provider of healthcare services that could be considered protected health information. And I hear a lot, what if it's, you know, an email address that's like, you know, blah, blah, blah at google.com and that doesn't identify them because it, there's still a probability that the person could be identified based on that email address, that information could be considered protected health information. So it's always best to err on the side of caution and establish that BAA if, if you're concerned that, that the platform will be accessing protected health information. I think that's huge because I think a lot of people don't know that. And so there you go. That was worth your listening time, guys. <laughs> that was really seriously. Let's talk about webinars. How does HIPAA play into that? Because once again, we're going to have a mixed bag there. Some people will be our patients and some people will not be our patients. And are they going to show up in the chat rooms? How how does this look from the HIPAA angle as well? So two things come to mind when I, when I think about HIPAA and webinars. My first thought is that is whatever platform you are using for for your webinar. If you're telling your patients to utilize a specific platform to access the webinar, the identity of your patient could be tied to the provision of healthcare services and that could be considered protected health information and that's when you start need to start thinking about the security and access to that health information. So whatever platform you're using, you would need to secure that BAA that we discussed. And I know Zoom comes to mind because I know personally I use that with healthcare providers and I know that Zoom offers HIPAA compliant packages and Zoom also um, has a BAA. So that's the first consideration is putting that information out there and making sure that you are securing 
access to that health information. But the other, the other side of, of this webinar is what you, what you mentioned in your question is if you're offering a, a pre-recorded or a live webinar, if it's pre-recorded, you know, you don't have that risk of, of other people identifying your patients. But if you're doing a live webinar, that's, it's a great point. If you're offering that live webinar, theoretically, the participants would be able to identify patients or potential patients. And then it becomes that question of whether this is that unauthorized disclosure of health information. And again, I think that depends on your specific facts, how you're offering it, what platform you're using, who's participating. But I think one really good way to make sure that all your ducks are in a row is to have your patient sign an authorization before they participate in that webinar and just an outline. Hey, look, this is the situation. You know, it's either this is all patients. This is a mixed bag of patients and not patients and not, you know, they could possibly identify you as one of my patients. Is it okay with you that this is disclosed and have them sign a disclosure saying that they authorize it and then there wouldn't be an issue. Okay. And they can also blind themselves, I think on Zoom too. I think you taught me that. Did or I maybe you didn't. Tech knowledge only goes so far, I think. But if well, I you did, need both. But I have to I keep <laughs> swimming, swimming, keep on swimming. Just gotta keep going, keep trying, keep working at it. Yeah, I think with Zoom, you can blind yourself so that people don't know your name. You can kind of make an alias. The other question that I had about the webinar is, let's see here. Once again, in learning from Maury West, who is the AccuBilling guru. She, I think, said in one of her seminars, the moment that you start giving advice is the moment that that person is your patient. And I haven't called my liability insurance company to see what they say about that. What can you say about that? About offering a a webinar and at what point do do your participants become your patient? Yeah. So in other words, if we're doing a webinar on, let's see here, exercises for low back pain. (sighs) Okay. So, well... I think that you can definitely offer webinars. And when I think of webinars, usually what I'm thinking of is professional educational webinars for continuing education. But I think there's certainly those opportunities for acupuncturists to offer educational webinars for their patients. And I think that, for example, in California, the scope of practice here is quite broad and allows acupuncturists to perform and prescribe massage, acupressure, breathing techniques, exercises. And so speaking on those topics as part of your webinar would fall within the scope of your practice as an acupuncturist and would educate your patients or potential patients as to the services you offer and the services that are available to them. And I think that if you are speaking in general about these services and you aren't tying that to a specific patient, then that wouldn't necessarily be considered medical advice and your patient. However, this again becomes that gray area because it it also comes down to the perception of the participant in the webinar and maybe that participant is already your patient and they know that you know that they are suffering with low back pain. So they interpret your information as speaking directly to them about what they should do. So I think there's this good and this bad. It For me personally, it brings something to mind. Like I saw on social media the other day, this acupuncturist that I follow was talking about, I can't remember what it's called. It's like a burning technique. Um, where you, yes. Where you, yeah. And so you burn that around the acupuncture points. And I, I didn't know that. And I was like, oh, wow that's really great. I'm so glad she put this out, put this out there because it brought this knowledge to me. And 
I know that I'm not going to go doing that because I don't know how how to do that. I'm not not trained in it. And I will seek out the the professional to help me with that. But that's me. And that's my perception of that information. I'm I'm happy that it's out there. Now I know about it. It was educational for me, but I can process that information and know that I'm not going to try doing that myself. The problem comes in where someone has a different layer of knowledge or education. And maybe they think this is something they can do on their own. Maybe they think that this is something that, that applies directly to them and they are using that as treatment advice. So it falls into that gray area of what, what your viewer, what the participant is perceiving. So you should be very careful about the information that you put out there. And I think a really helpful tool is kind of like, like we were talking about what I did at the beginning of our, of our, of this discussion was say, Hey, look, you know, we're, we're talking about these things and, and you're talking about these different modalities that you use in terms of your practice, but make clear and what, whether that's a written, a written disclaimer or a verbal disclaimer, but make clear to them, Hey, look, this is a modality. This is something that I use. This is something that is available to you that I want to bring to your attention. This is, this is what it is. This is how it can be used. These are some benefits of using it, but you should, you should seek out the professional to help you if this is something that you're interested in and make, and make that very clear as part, as part of your information. That was awesome. If you guys are multitasking, you need to come back to that and listen to that again, because I see this a lot too. And I really feel like there needs to be some disclaimers. And it also builds professionalism when you do have the disclosures of don't try this at home. Yes. (laughs) Seek out a professional provider, but this is available for you. You can find me at la 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 acupuncture business, you know, so I do see that often too. And it's really fun to educate people, but ultimately you want to have them come see you. (laughs) So (laughs) kind of put a call to action. Here's Moxa. Here's what it can do. This isn't something that you try at home. Come see me. Yeah, that was a great explanation. Thank you. Another question that I have, and this probably falls um, into the webinar category as well, is I see people have membership, and this is all tying into the webinars, actually. People have memberships where if somebody, maybe they're not ready to come in and get acupuncture, but they're very curious and they want to learn about better healthcare practices, whether it's nutrition or things that fall under the scope of an acupuncturist. And so we can put on webinars for people who purchase a membership to our practice or to our business. Once again, at what point are they, are they your patients or are they not your patients? I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that this falls under that same, the same discussion that we were having about coaching and webinars. And, and if you are offering this general informational content for for members, then I would make sure that you're using those tools. You're putting the disclaimer out there Mm -hmm. that you aren't directly speaking to a client about their condition and telling them how you can treat their condition. But if you're saying, hey, look, I have these webinars that you can have access to for a membership fee. I think that falls as as long as those are falling under everything that we already discussed, uh, being that general informational 
content, then yes, I think that that having a, a membership for that would be fine. I think some things to consider if you are doing that, some practical items would be you on your website, I, I assume that people would be accessing a membership through your website, would be to have a, a privacy policy because people are going to be putting in, and this is different from HIPAA, they're there's consumer privacy laws and there's, which are different. And you're going to be collecting information from them, whether even if that's just an email address from them that you would want a privacy policy that advises your participants or members about how you are, how you, why you collect their information, how you use it, if you disclose it. So you would want to have a privacy policy on your website. And I would also, it isn't a requirement, but having terms of use for your website is also a good idea to to let them know the boundaries of that membership. So that if they have, if, if they sign up and then two days later say, I don't want this anymore, like what's your policy for refunding and, and things like that, have all of that information included in your terms of use so that there's no question as the membership progresses. I hadn't even thought about all of that. That's just why we're doing this podcast. We've been thinking <laughs> about these memberships and I think it's just super smart. People are interested. They're interested in you. You can build relationships with them this way and then they'll turn into patients. So I think it's a really great way to market and build relationships but there's definitely steps to it. And I hadn't even considered those. So that was really helpful. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift again, and we're going to talk a little bit about social media. That's huge. That's how we're building relationships and driving people to our website or to our practice. Are there any specific things that we need to be aware of with regards to interacting on social media? Yes, there's there's two really important legal areas that come to mind when I think about social media in terms of healthcare. And one is that protected health information. And the other is, is at what point does your content become that medical advice? So looking at HIPAA first, when HIPAA was enacted, social media didn't really exist or exist how we know it now, or it, it wasn't used how we use it now. So specifically, there's nothing specific in HIPAA that applies to social media, but HIPAA does itself still apply to social media and and it prohibits the use of protected health information on social media unless it falls under one of those exceptions, like if you have your patient's authorization. So what this means is that you shouldn't be posting any text or images that could result in your patient being identified. And, and like I mentioned before, for images, don't put, don't post any photos of your patient's face or tattoos or piercings that could identify them or anything that shows, you know, the date of their treatment. Because if your patient could be identified by that photo, then that's protected health information. And, and that is a violation of HIPAA by putting that on social media. And it isn't just yes or no, could your patient be identified because of that content. It's, it's also if there is a reasonable basis to believe that the photo could be used to identify the individual. So much of the law can be gray. So if you think there is any that your patient could be identified based on the content that you're putting out there, I would not put it out there. And again, the only way that you could do this without violating HIPAA is if your patient has given you their express consent in writing to allow you to put their health information out there. And even at that, you can only use their health information as specifically provided for in their consent. I do think it's important to note that there are a lot of templates or <laughs> forms that you can find on Google. And when it comes to a HIPAA authorization, HIPAA is actually very specific about what needs to be contained in your authorization. So making sure that your authorization complies with HIPAA is important. I think another important 
issue that comes up in social media is if your patient comments on something that you post. So I think that you should most certainly never acknowledge that they are a patient of yours or say anything about services that they've had with you. But if they are asking a question that could identify them as a patient or disclose their health information, then I would, then I would comment on there something like, because, because of privacy laws, this isn't a comment we can address in a public space, but please feel free to call or email Mm -hmm. my office. Um, just putting it out there that you are not discussing health information in, in that social sphere. Right. And I've even had this happen with them. Try to message me on Facebook Mm -hmm. and I automatically go, I can't discuss anything here. If you would like to get in contact with me, you need to email me or call me. Yeah. So they try because they don't, they don't know. And because I mean, social media use is so common. I end up personally texting with friends and talking to them through Instagram at the same time. So we, I mean, we use it to communicate so easily and freely that, that people just, you know, make assumptions about the security of things. I think, I think another important issue to think about when it comes to social media, if you have a larger practice, if it's not just you, because controlling what you do is one thing, but it's something entirely different. If you have staff, especially a large staff, because people will post pictures. And if they're posting pictures from within inside your office, it's possible that they could inadvertently include someone's health information in their photos, photos. So you're going to want to make sure that you have those safeguards in place. HIPAA says that you, as the healthcare provider, you have to take those appropriate measures, whether that's administrative, whether they're physical or technical safeguards to ensure that this, this information is secure and that you have to evaluate for what that looks like specifically to your practice. And because it's difficult to control people or employees, you should, you should establish in your practice a written policy and procedure for social media use by employees and specifically limit what they can and cannot post. And to develop that, it would be very important to consult with someone who understands HIPAA to make sure that your policy is protecting you at the level that you need it to be, because there isn't something specific in HIPAA that says this is what your policy should state. It's going to be specific for your practice. And because social media is is changing all the time, reviewing your policy, your written policies periodically, and making sure that it's still relevant and compliant with HIPAA is also important. Also hadn't considered that policies and procedures with tech stuff and social media. One other point that I think that would be helpful is including a specific social media disclaimer. And I see this with the larger hospitals and stuff. In my own life, I see it. A lot of the larger hospitals will have a social media disclaimer on their website that essentially lays the ground rules for social media and disclaims the content that's on their social media, saying that it should not be considered as medical advice. And these are specific to social media. So I I think that that is also a a very good idea to have. Mm And those people who are teaching Moxa on Instagram should put that on their website. That's what you just said. Yeah, actually. I'm good like that. I'll put it out there. Okay. I guess the last question that I had for you would be with regards to our phone and texting. I'm going to throw myself under the bus here for a minute because I, I sort of, when the pandemic hit, I shut 
down and I got rid of my office phone. And then I started seeing patients on my deck during the summer at my house. I can just feel your lawyer. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> we'll just, You're not we'll alone. Just, just keep a list. <laughs> just keep a mental list in there of everything. That and then, yeah, so I did text my patients. We just used text when they pulled into the the driveway. They weren't allowed out of the car until I came out and took their temperature. But then I started thinking, this isn't probably okay. <laughs> so can you address my my wayward ways? Yeah, that's, that is how I meet most of my clients. But <laughs> that this is probably not okay, right? That's usually what I hear. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think that your problem isn't necessarily that it's your personal phone. It isn't the, that it's not your business phone. I think it's the security of a phone. <laughs> I think the way to look at it is, so if you, you're texting someone from, from a phone period and using just regular messaging, someone could pick up your phone. Someone could pick up your patient's phone and look at that. And there could be that inadvertent disclosure of health information. Mm -hmm. Also, we are all human and we all make mistakes and we could hit the wrong button and accidentally send health information to someone unintended. So that is something that using, using a cell phone and, and, the normal commercial, you know, text messaging where that could be a concern. And then the th a third area of concern would be, and again, I am not going to pretend that I'm a tech person. So with my limited knowledge of cellular technology, my understanding is that copies of text messages remain on cell service providers servers. And my understanding is that that is indefinitely and that there's no way to get that back or delete them. So in that sense, you're going back to what we were discussing before. You're giving your cell service provider access to protected health information. And, and there's really no way to, to control how that's, how that's secure. So again, it's not the problem that you're texting on your personal phone versus an office phone. It's the security of transmitting and securing that health information. So I know it's easier to use commercial text messaging. I know that many people do it, but the best way to do that would be to use a secure messaging app. And I hear the frustrations with it, but that is a way to protect yourself because you know that it's a secure way to message with someone. Do you think there's anything else that we missed or that we should talk about? God, no. It's exhausting, right? Yeah. I'm so tired. I am. <laughs> I, this stuff, I'll be honest, this excites me. I like kind of have a lot of energy. <laughs> no, I know. I know. And it's, I understand it's, it's, it would be e equally similar if I sat and talked to you about Chinese medicine for 90 minutes yeah. and you'd be like, please stop. <laughs> this hurts. No, the wording's a, a little different. And so you're really tracking and thinking really hard about the language and about understanding it too. It's really yes. hard. Okay. Do you think that um, everything that, that we covered will we'll give give your listeners like a direction and somewhere to start or some understanding of where to start? Wow. We have covered so much. And I hope that my listeners really understand the incredible value that you have so generously provided. I totally appreciate you coming on and letting me throw questions your direction and all of the time that you spent researching everything that I asked and having it all prepared. I'm so incredibly grateful. 
You are you are so welcome. I'm so happy to be on here. In my personal life, I use so many different aspects of health and wellness and what I can give back. I mean, that is why I do what I do. I, I appreciate what health and wellness providers offer to me, to my family, to my friends, to society. And so whatever I can give back, I'm, I'm so happy to do that. Well, in closing, thank you so much for being on the podcast and taking your time to help out new practitioners of Chinese medicine. I totally appreciate it. You are so welcome. All right. I'll take care. That's it. That's the show. Thanks for listening, you guys. I uh, want to give a special thanks to Accu Heather for leaving me a really, really nice review on Apple Podcasts. If you guys appreciate what I'm doing here, it would be amazing if you were like Heather. Be like Heather. Go leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That would be amazing. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. A lot, a lot, a lot. Thank you. That's it. That's the end of the show. Thanks for tuning in. I really appreciate you guys. And if you appreciate this podcast, it would be amazing if you could head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a great review. And if you don't like what I'm doing, then that's okay. No worries. Just skip it. <laughs>